It seems as though this year we've mainly been focused on trying to survive a pandemic. And as much as we love to live through historical events, so much more has happened over the past year than just coronavirus. Good evening, I'm Maria Camaño. And I'm Maria Jimena Aragon. You're listening to WNUR News 89.3 FMHD1, Evanston, Chicago. Welcome to this quarter's hour-long special broadcast. Tonight, a year in review and stories you may have missed during the pandemic. Greek life at Northwestern looks a bit different now than it did before the coronavirus. Fraternity and sorority membership has declined since the movement on campus by some students to abolish Greek life. Reporter Angelina Campanile gives us an inside look on where things may be headed. The Abolish Greek Life movement at Northwestern first gained traction last July. An Instagram account was created on which students made accusations of sexual harassment against several fraternities. There were also allegations of sexism, classism, and racism throughout Greek life. I wanted to learn how fraternities and sororities at Northwestern may have changed since then. In full disclosure, I am an active member of Kappa Delta. It is one of more than five sororities that have lost more than half of its members over the past year. Earlier this week, we learned that five sororities would not reopen in the fall. The president of the Panhellenic Council did not respond to our interview request, but a member of the executive board did agree to speak to us. As far as for individual chapters, they are having a hard time with sustaining their houses. I can't speak for all chapters, but for mine, like we don't have a lot of members, but like our alumni are helping us offset the costs of housing so that the members we do have can live in the house. She asked that we not use her name. She was concerned about being subject to criticism from some Northwestern students because of her involvement in Greek life. I know that the focus lately has been on recruitment and accessibility, making sure that we have enough funds, making sure that people who want to be in Greek life have financial support that they need um, in order to be able to participate like other people. The drop in membership has meant a steep decline in dues which fund those scholarships and recruitment. We are solely funded by the chapters that we serve. We either would have to see there be more new members in each chapter, or we would have to raise the amount that we charge per member, which in turn would probably raise dues in general for each chapter. The recruitment process for new members has been under scrutiny by students who feel it can be arbitrary and exclusive. I think one of the main changes that we are going to try to implement is more of an informal recruitment process um, that allows for potential new members to really get to know the chapters um, and for potential new members to have more of a say of what chapters they're joining because I know in the formal recruitment process at least in my experience chapters had more of a say um, and that obviously led to some uh, to some problems. Interfraternity Council President Nick Papandreou says the IFC has already moved towards a more informal process. What we tried during COVID to do um, is foster an environment where you have actual engagement instead of just, you know, show up to the house, get a bid and then join. Uh, so that's why we kind of altered our whole recru recruitment process in the winter, which is formal recruitment. Um, and I think it gives people um, legitimate say in like and the opportunity to present themselves to um, and have discussions with like recruitment chairs and the members of a chapter if if they feel that that chapter is their top choice. How do you fix you know classism, racism, and sexism among Greek life? Is that something that you think you can do? And if so, how? No, yeah, I think those things can be changed, and I think we've made very substantial progress in changing them. Any report that we take that we receive and which we see on the, um, you know, either through conduct or uh, social media, we take very seriously. I think the messaging in this sort of term of the IFC executive board has changed and we understand our, our faults and we're working on them and we want people to come in who are going to 
solve those issues or help us rather solve those issues. Three of 15 fraternities will no longer be on campus come fall. Delta Upsilon's house has been turned into a residential hall after the chapter disbanded. Phi Delta Theta is in the process of disbanding as their house is currently empty. Phi Kappa Psi will also be closing, but involuntarily. IFC suspended Phi Psi from campus for five years after the fraternity hosted an on-campus party in January that violated the IFC codes of conduct. The goal is, again, to minimize the harm that fraternities do, maximize the benefits, and make their existence on our campus a massive net gain. And I think education is going to be, if I could like change one thing, it would, it would be making sure that people um, are fully build on what we do um, on our educational programs. For WNUR News, I'm Angelina Campanile. The 2020-2021 school year was a big adjustment for many students, not just because of the pandemic or being first years at NU, but from starting a new university at least a year into their academic career. For our first roundtable tonight, reporter Helen Bradshaw sits down with members of Northwestern Transfer class to learn more about their experiences. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about the transfer experience over the past year because previous years have been different. And I think it's safe to say that for many people, including transfers, this year has been a little bit unusual, to say the least. So with that, let's introduce ourselves. Okay, so I'm Helen. I'm a sophomore transfer, and I transferred from Emory University. I'm Jenna. I am now a junior. I transferred last year as a sophomore, and I transferred from University of Denver. Uh, my name is Trevor. I'm a sophomore transfer, and I transferred from Bowdoin College. My name is Nick, sophomore transfer, and I transferred from uh, Santa Monica College, a community college in L.A. Okay. Welcome, everybody. Um, just to start, like, putting things in perspective, obviously this year has been crazy, and I think for me at least, and I know probably a lot of you can identify with this, as a transfer, it's been like kind of a rough start because like they didn't have the same transition that I feel like they usually do. So to put that in perspective a little bit, Jenna, could you talk about what it was like on a more normal year transferring? For me, transferring was a lot more, was a lot harder originally than I already thought because like freshman year it was so easy because everyone wants to meet everyone and everyone's just like so like welcome to new connections and people are still welcome to new connections sophomore year, but they're a little more solidified in their friend groups. You have to do like background research almost to like join friend group to like understand all the, like the drama that happened before. And like, you're constantly like, who's that? What happened? What dorm, what, what, what dorm is that? You know? Um, and so I think it was already pretty hard to like adjust socially that I can't even imagine how it is like in a pandemic too, so. Have you felt that your transfer experience has been overlooked at all in this year of COVID? Um, I wouldn't say overlooked, but it has been kind of difficult because I, I might be unique in this situation. Like I spent my first two quarters uh, at home and this is my first quarter on campus. So it's it's been really difficult just to make friends and like Jenna was saying, meet people and, and find out their backgrounds and things like that. But overlooked, no, I don't think so. I think there is a lot of programming out there to, to facilitate uh, new students, but you just have to be willing to look for it. Um, and when you're at home, you're, it, it's kind of, it might be difficult to do so. Does anybody have any hopes for like the future or things you would like to see change for next year's transfer class maybe in terms of like how they're introduced to things like things you wish you had had uh, you know we have no idea what it's going to look like in terms of um i'm really i hope it's going to be a lot more like how jenna um you know the environment when she transferred in it's hard in general to meet other transfer students um let alone transfer students within your school like i know with medill there's only like God, less than a dozen transfer um, students for that year. And we, you know, we, we've met each other by now, most of them, but it, we wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have met like Trevor and Helen as easily if we hadn't been in the same PA group. It would be really nice if that 
PA group thing got extended towards maybe like the first quarter. Maybe this is sort of a, a dumb answer, but I kind of, I want to walk through the arch, you know, <laughs> like I want to do some of the, the traditions that, that freshmen or new transfers do that we weren't able to do um, at the beginning of the year and that were virtual. And, you know, I think even as, as symbolic or arbitrary as some of those things are, I think they are really good ways of, of introducing people to Northwestern. And I, I just wish we had had that. And I was wondering if you guys have any feelings about what makes this experience so different from like a freshman year experience that you think are kind of um, not realized as much by the general public? As a like second year at Northwestern, but I transferred last year, like I'm taking a year off, but I was supposed to be going into my junior year and like doing that completely online and then being a senior and having only two in-person like t- quarters at Northwestern. And so like when you cons- like conceptualize it, like I'm a senior at Northwestern, but I've only had two quarters really to meet people. It's like, that's just your entire college experience is gone. And so I think that was something that like over when people are like first talking about COVID, they're like, oh, I feel so bad for the freshmen and the seniors. And obviously I feel horrible for them because, and I feel horrible for you guys too, because you guys are losing that initial stage into Northwestern. I really feel bad for you guys, but it's also like for returner transfers, it's just like basically three years are gone. Yeah. um, My sister, she like often asks me, like, do you feel like you were robbed of, of a college experience because, you know, you weren't, feeling the first year at the first school and then you had to go to the next school and that wasn't what you expected. Um, but to be honest, I, I would say no, like, I, I don't think so. I think you know, circumstances are what they are and it, it could be a whole lot worse, honestly. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad to have met, still have met people and had the opportunity to meet people, um, even though it's not in the way that I necessarily envisioned it first coming in. Uh, but I'm still grateful for that. If you ask any transfer student about the path they've take, taken to get to where they are right now, um, you know, across the board, it's going to be unorthodox of having to apply to college a second time or having to go through this, this process of, you know, finding a new home again. Overall, though, I'm, I've never been happier. You know, I've met really great friends here and hung out with people, even if it is virtually, like, I still think those relationships matter. Yeah, I agree. I found myself at first comparing my time a lot to my freshman year because I, like, was very lucky and then I found all my best friends very quickly and they all got to go back this year and I was just sitting at home and, you know, I was like, oh, what if I had just stayed? I would get to be with my best friends and, like, I miss them so much and, you know, maybe it wasn't the right school for me, but like I would be there, you know, but as I've gotten here and kind of settled in more, I find myself very grateful for kind of taking that leap. I was, I was scared to transfer and I was scared to, you know, try something new when I had gotten comfortable in a school. I found it very rewarding in the long run. I wish that things were different, but if anything, I'm just motivated to like make the most out of my final two years. I feel like I should say something like inspirational because I was only, I was just like a Debbie Downer the whole time. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, my mom was here last week and she asked me, you know, the mom question for tra- all transfers, like, are you, do you ever like think about going back? You know, <laughs> one of those questions. And I don't know, when she asked me if I wish I had stayed at DU or if I like, if there's any part of me that was asked, Honestly, like as much as I complain about COVID and how it's impacted transferring, like, no, I can't imagine what my life would look like there. And I feel like I've just changed so much being here from COVID and from Northwestern that it's worth it. If we were given the option of doing things over again, um, granted, disregarding like the whole COVID world pandemic stuff, I think this year went really, really great. Like, honestly, I'm ending my first year here having friends, having like a community, a support network around me, um, people that 
you know, I know and they know me back. And I think, yeah, the next two years, I, I'm not thinking of it as we only get two years, but I get two years with these people. And that's the corniest line ever that you'll ever hear me say, but also transferring just like not to like be pro transfer but like it just gives you such an amazing outlook on life like I feel like transfers are honestly like the coolest smartest groups of people because they just like understand not even like on like a test level like on an emotional level like they understand when they need to take a step back and reevaluate life and they understand what that's like and they understand what it is to like make those hard decisions and that's such like a rare quality to find in such like a close group of people in a community in college. So okay. yeah, in our unbiased, completely unbiased opinion, mm-hmm. transfers really are just awesome. I agree. <laughs> Even as the pandemic shortened the season and kept fans out of the stands, 2020 was a year to remember for baseball. The Los Angeles Dodgers defeated the Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series, winning their first championship in over 30 years. With more, here's WNUR News reporter and resident Dodger fan Nick Song. The first time I cried over baseball was on October 15th, 2008. I was nine years old and obsessed with the game in the way only a third grader could be. The Dodgers, they were my team. I used to imagine myself watching different moments across Dodger history. Legendary players stepping up in moments to lead the team to World Series glory. Jackie Robinson, stealing home in the 1955 World Series against the Yankees. Injured vet Kirk Gibson hitting a backdoor slider over the wall to walk it off in 1988. I grew up on these stories, though I wasn't alive to see any of these moments for myself. However, on that night in October 2008, I was in the stands of Dodger Stadium. We were in the NLCS, playing the Phillies for the National League pennant. We were on the cusp of returning to the land of glory. Every fan has their team, not just a club, but a specific era of the team. The group of guys broken into your memory like the leathery pocket of an old catcher's mitt. Players who have long hung up their spikes, yet years later you still expect to see backing up the throw to third, or covering second for the routine double play. That was my Dodger team. Matt Kemp, Andre Ethier, Russell Martin, Nomar Billingsley, some rookie named Clayton, Manny Ramirez, Greg freaking Maddox. It didn't matter if they were old and well past the primes, they'd taken us to the postseason, to where we were now. In hindsight, the writing was on the wall. Led by Ryan Howard and Chase Utley still in their primes, the Phillies that year were a team of destiny. But try explaining that to nine-year-old me. It was game five. We were down three games to one, but I knew we would come back. Even as the Dodgers fell behind five runs to one, we had it in the bag. Even as the game entered the bottom of the ninth, I never lost hope. Blake kicks it in the air to right center. Victorino to his left. One on, one out. Even as Nomar came up to bat. Ciampara pops it up. Ruiz says he's got it. The Phillies win the pennant. There's a quote about baseball from A.B. Giamatti. Baseball, he says, is designed to break your heart. It comes in for the spring, and on the autumn days you need it most, it disappears, leaving you heartbroken. You begin to expect it. It becomes a way of marking the passage of time. Stitch by stitch, the blind hope you once felt becomes to come undone, and the heart ceases to soften. It's called growing up, knowing better, getting real. No matter the phrase, it's a way to cope coming into each season already bearing a kernel of disappointment. Baseball is a game designed to leave 29 fans empty-handed in order to give the 30th the world. Trades, free agency, and athletic retirement faded the team of my youth away. I continued rooting for the Dodgers, even as I and the team evolved. That kid I mentioned earlier, Clayton Kershaw, he developed into the best pitcher of his generation. Campanethier may have left, but we got Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts as their MVP replacements. We got better, so much better. And we even got closer to hollowed ground. My last years of high school, we won the pennant and went to the World Series in back-to-back years. Still, the sting of 2008 returned, pricking deeper and sharper the closer we seemed to get. Here's a ground ball right side, could do it. The Houston Astros are world champions. Red Sox win the World Series. 
When 2020 began, I expected to feel disappointment come October. The Dodgers were looking great, but we looked great in 2018, 2019, and 08. I would believe it when I see it. When the pandemic hit and the league postponed opening day, it all seemed to act as an extension of my own pessimism. Baseball returned in the summer right as the world continued to be in lockdown. Watching the Dodgers play each game, I felt connected in the way only a global pandemic can make you feel. That feeling continued through early September when I moved from LA to start my first year at Northwestern, albeit under extreme circumstances. Still, I felt connected, and the Dodgers kept winning. Don't get me wrong, this year wasn't easy. Distance relationships and distance learning tested patience I didn't even know I had. I'd routinely find myself wondering if I'd made the right call to come to campus. Likewise, after an easy sweep of the Padres, the Dodgers made it to the NLCS to face the Braves. Soon, however, we fell behind three games to one, and it looked once again like this year was to end in a heartbreak. Yet we persisted. Through clutch outings and determined play, we crawled our way out and won two in a row to escape elimination. In Game 7, Bellinger hit a home run to seal the game and make the comeback official, sending us to the World Series once again. Soon in the World Series, we were up three games to two, and entering ninth, we were up by two runs. That night, I was watching the game with my friend on their couch. Even as the second out was made, I didn't think we'd do it. I wouldn't let myself believe. looking to out. Dodger fans to their feet. In that moment, I wondered what it felt like to be the 30th fan. The fan who, unlike the 29 others, ends the season in celebration. The fan who sees their team fully realized and isn't haunted by the what-ifs. I imagine the joy they must feel, the ability to once again hope without disappointment. In that moment, even if it was just for that moment, I wanted more than anything to be that 30th fan. And strike three! Dodgers have won it all! in 2020. The last time I cried over baseball was on October 27th, 2020. I was 21 years old, and it felt amazing. For WNUR News, I'm Nick Song. While our lives shifted online, social media platforms like Twitter and TikTok brought us endless debates on cryptocurrency to the powerhouse that is Olivia Rodrigo's music. Reporter Alex Harrison breaks it down. Boy, it sure seems like social media is more important than ever, doesn't it? Ever since the pandemic hit and the U.S. went into quarantine about 14 or 15 months ago, God, has it been that long? Platforms like Twitter, Reddit, and yes, TikTok seem to be having a greater and greater impact on what we consider the real world. Like, sure, Facebook the company is now a media empire, driven by your parents sharing minion memes. But did a bunch of Facebook users ever coordinate the crash of some Wall Street portfolios? No, that was the work of Redditors over at r slash Wall Street Bets. After finding out that some brokers were profiting off of betting against companies like GameStop and AMC Theaters, it's more complicated than that, but I refuse to learn how it actually works. A large number of them began buying huge amounts of shares, driving the brokers to losses and ultimately profiting themselves if they could just hold out. The price of these stocks have mostly stabilized since then, albeit at prices several times greater than their pre-pump value. Another financial disruption caused by social media has been the explosion of interest in cryptocurrency. Although crypto has been around for quite a while, it has mostly stayed in the realm of hobbyists and international drug traffickers. Yes, really. Now everyone and their cousin has tried buying some crypto, whether it's more well-established coins like Bitcoin or Ethereum, or the more niche, like Dogecoin. Come on, you knew it was going there. Unlike other coins, Dogecoin's spike in value and popularity can mostly be attributed to one person, multi-billionaire and failed SNL star Elon Musk whose Twitter account has become gospel for the crypto crowd. Coins of all kinds remain extremely volatile investments, but this level of interest has been noticed by the traditional market, and analysts who are used to tracking Fortune 500 companies are now forced to discuss an internet currency named after a 10-year-old meme. We had a guest earlier who was saying it's a game, a fun game. And I was like, aghast. Yep. 
a fun game is gambling. And I don't believe that gambling should be encouraged, Carl. On the other side of the spectrum is TikTok, a video sharing app that has inspired so, so many impulsive trends, followed by stir-crazy Zoomers over the past year. But passing trends aside, TikTok has made a lasting impact on pop culture by helping launch some serious projects. Chief among them is Olivia Rodrigo, the 18-year-old singer-songwriter Disney actress whose breakout single Driver's License took TikTok by storm in January. The song broke records on release, becoming Spotify's most streamed non-holiday song in a single day on just day four, and was inescapable on everyone's For You pages. After the song hit number one on US charts and went triple platinum, Rodrigo's planned EP turned into a full studio album, Sour, which was released just one week ago at time of broadcast. Another single from that album, Good For You, also debuted at number one on US charts and Rodrigo's reign as TikTok's queen musician does not seem to be ending anytime soon. Lest we forget TikTok's collaborative abilities, however, Ratatouille the Musical was conjured into existence by the collective work of numerous TikTok stars, turning Pixar's movie that asked, what if a rat could cook, into a live musical that asked, what if a rat could cook and sing? After users spent months organizing and professionalizing the music and promotional materials, the show made the jump to Broadway, kind of, and premiered in January as a virtual benefit concert. Around $2 million were raised for the Actors Fund, and over 350,000 viewers attended across two performances. Finally, there's the expanded role that Twitter has played over the past year. Because while Twitter has been a player in real-life news and trends for many years, especially for journalists, looking at you, Medill Twitter, the platform took on an interesting role during a year of unrest and uprising the world over, democratizing the reporting of protests and major events. During the uprisings that followed the murder of George Floyd last year, traditional media outlets found it difficult to accurately report on what was happening, not least of which because of the distrust many protesters had towards them. Instead, activists and others began self-reporting what was happening on the ground, including photos and videos, in order to create a live feed of updates that anyone in the world could see. This trend has been growing on Twitter for quite some time, but only in the past year has it seen mainstream and widespread use. This use of Twitter transcends both nations and ideologies as well. Many Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank have posted updates in media to Twitter in order to show their perspective of the ongoing missile strikes by Israel. And on January 6, 2021, both reporters and Trump supporters in Washington, D.C. provided numerous angles of the Capitol insurrection to Twitter as it occurred. This democratization of on-the-ground coverage will likely only grow as activists begin forming stronger connections between themselves and independent media, such as Unicorn Riot. As the pandemic maybe begins to wind down and in-person activities become safe once again, the influence of social media may wane just a bit. But in this reporter's opinion, the power that online platforms can have over real-life trends has only just been revealed, and will likely grow even greater in the future. Terminally Online, this is Alex Harrison, WNUR News. Hobbies. We all have them. But with nothing but time in our hands amid lockdown, some of us took on new activities to keep quarantine boredom at bay. Thomas Goodwin reports. Seemingly out of nowhere, the world shut down in 2020. We were stuck at home with nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no shortage of free time on our hands. Well, some of us turned lockdown into an opportunity to pursue an interest or discover a new passion. WNUR's own Helen Bradshaw is one such person who took up a unique hobby during the quarantine. The Northwestern sophomore studying journalism and art history starts making rugs. I'll let her tell you about it. Rug making is the most prolific of all the hobbies I tried. I think I saw it on TikTok first. There's like a pretty big TikTok rug making community. You get a frame. I just made mine out of plywood with my dad. And then you can get like strips to put around it. You have this monk's cloth stretched out like a canvas. It's just an off-white fabric that is basically a lattice structure. And you have this tufting tool, and you string, you string yarn through the hole, and then you just poke it into the frame. It's just like a really soft 
punch into the fabric. It's actually quite satisfying. It kind of lulls you into it because it's just very monotonous and you just keep doing that forever. You can use any color palette that your heart desires, which makes it really fun because it's, it's like very customizable. You know, anything you can dream up, you can make it there into a rug. Meanwhile, the pandemic disrupts supply chains for certain commodities, including yeast, when everyone gets into bread making at the same time. Middle Northwestern graduate student and baker Emily Little is quick to hop on that bread making train. Emily, tell me about your hobby. I really dove into cooking and baking during the pandemic. Um, I'd always loved cooking and baking. That was my stress relief. And I think creating something tangible was really important for me. To a certain extent, I knew if I, you know, mix these ingredients together, it was going to make bread at the end. So that was kind of where I channeled all of that energy into. I'm still using the same bread recipe uh, that I found during the pandemic. You start, you don't need it actually, which is why I like this recipe a lot. So you start by mixing water, flour, yeast, and salt. And then I let it sit at room temperature for about three hours and then in the fridge overnight. And then once you're done with that, take the bread onto a flour counter, shape it into loaves, and then you bake them. It's a beautiful golden brown. It looks so good. Um, I love the contrast between a really nice crust uh, and a very soft center. Not everyone was necessarily stuck at home 24-7 during lockdown, however. Nick Okaiza, a Northwestern sophomore studying political science and statistics, uses quarantine as an excuse to spend more time outside. Tell us about that, Nick. Yeah, so since the pandemic started, I've actually gotten into cycling um, as a hobby. Probably went on maybe five or six rides a week. At the end of the summer, I would be going out maybe like 40 to 50 mile rides. Sometimes I would get back and I would be barely able to walk up the steps to my room. But I enjoyed it a lot. It was really satisfying to get up those higher lengths because, uh, like, that's whenever you start getting into, like, the distance that would be required for, like, a triathlon or something that I hadn't really considered before the pandemic, but maybe I will now. And there were some ways the pandemic brought us together. For one thing, everyone seemed to be watching the same TV shows. And when Netflix released The Queen's Gambit, a lot of people found themselves interested in learning to play chess. Northwestern freshmen studying journalism, WNUR's own Allison Rauch, was among them. How did you end up getting into chess, Allison? A lot of people watched Queen's Gambit. I definitely was one of them. And then um, my boyfriend at the time was really into chess. And then we were in a long-distance relationship, so we started playing chess like online together, um, like just for fun. I'm terrible at it because it's a steep learning curve. Yeah, like playing on chess.com, and I got really, really into it for like a month. Like the first month of winter quarter when we were just all stuck in our dorms pretty much because like it was cold and COVID. I played chess every day. My roommate was so, like, she made fun of me so much. I would just be watching chess strategy on YouTube and like taking notes on my notes app. Like literally before I'd go to bed. In my dorm, I live in Elder Hall. We have like a kind of like checkerboard like um like ceiling it's like in squares it looks kind of like a linoleum floor but it's the ceiling so i was like in bed looking up at it and i was like oh like this is like queen's gambit moment like i just need some drugs and i'll start picturing the moves on the ceiling so while some competitions thrive over the pandemic also a time when televised sports games come to a screeching halt in a really unprecedented way Many sports fans initially don't know what to do with their time, including Connor Grohl, a Maydale Northwestern graduate student who hosts the podcast Slept on Sports. A lot of people were really missing sports at the beginning of the pandemic. I think something that really helped was the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Something that everyone was really trying to find was ways to stay connected with people and to have a big kind of event like that that we could still follow on a weekly basis, like a lot of us do with our favorite sports, was really big. Now, people were pretty much looking for whatever sports were happening that they could kind of pay attention to. So when the Korean Baseball League started up early, people were fans of that. 
There were some soccer leagues that kind of returned internationally before others did. Germany was one of the first major soccer leagues to return, so a lot of people were watching German soccer. There was some more coverage of, like, Australian football, uh, which they have, you know, kind of like a different version of football, but that was on TV. Uh, a lot of people loved, like, marble racing on YouTube. Like, there were a lot of, like, weird kind of competitions that kind of got popular for a little bit, which was kind of interesting. Of course, sports, like the rest of the world, has seen a sometimes awkward gradual reopening. And as 2021 promises to be at least a more normal year than 2020, some of us can say we used our time in isolation to hone our skills. I'm Thomas Goodwin, WNUR News. Hey, Maria, do you have any hobbies? Funny that you ask, Maria. I'm an avid frog-stuffed animal collector. Nice. <laughs> As we move on from rocking our fashion in the comfort of our living rooms to finally showing it off to real life people, the Avant basic style is taking over social media feeds. Reporter Margo Milanowski looks into the origins of this aesthetic and how it's everything but basic. Over the last few months to a year, a certain style of clothing and even home decor has cropped up called Avant basic. The term coined by Twitter user Emma Hope Allwood refers to the quirkiness of the trend in the first half, but the saturation of the style and popular media in the second. For me, immediately when I saw it, like I saw what Avant Basic entailed, I kind of thought like, okay, Memphis design movement, but like maybe a little watered down. Um, that's like this big style of like patterns that was really big in the 80s. Think like the McDonald's Sprite from like the 90s, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, so it's like a repetition of like colorful patterns, um, print mixing. I think most like where I've seen it most online, it's always been like pastel colors, like that pastel green that's really big right now. Um, pastel purple. Yeah. That's Melissa Santoyo, a Northwestern student and styling staffer for Northwestern's fashion magazine, Stitch. So it's just kind of like these patterns that you think would be like um, pretty far-fetched, pretty out there, but because they've become so popularized by like TikTok and social media, um, that's kind of where the basic aspect comes in. Like everyone's wearing these, so they're less, um, I think it's like a way for people to like express themselves without being like too out there. These pieces can be found on fast fashion websites that are constantly updated according to what's trending, including popular clothing and accessory website Shein, Instagram shops, and more. While the style is all over these stores and social media, many people have commented on how they don't actually see this avant basic style anywhere else for a host of reasons. From people not wanting to repeat outfits to people going out less during the pandemic. Yeah, so I definitely don't see it in real life. And I just think that's because we live in the Midwest. <laughs> um, like, I don't know, Evanston is not particularly the fashion capital of the world um, or like the fashion capital of like Illinois. Um, so yeah, I don't see it much in real life. And I frankly don't see it outside of Instagram or TikTok. It definitely feels like it's being pushed heavily by influencers. Like I am thinking of someone right now who I don't want to butcher her name. Um, but it's like Roe Singh, I believe. Um, her Instagram, it's beautiful. It's full of like bright pastel colors, things like that. Um, like I'm looking at like her pattern pillows. Some of her candles even are in like the shapes um, you would see on the patterns of like avant basic pieces. It's unclear if this trend is here to stay or be quickly cycled through like many trends. I like checked out Vogue's predictions for like what fall 2021 is going to look like. And though nothing like screams specifically avant basic, I still see a lot of the like trends that have been popular even like last fall still cropping up in certain places. So I don't know. I don't think this is going to be particularly short lived, but um, I, I think it also depends on like your media consumption and how much you like buy into trends and stuff like that. For WNUR News, I'm Margo Milanowski. In the wise words of the backyardigans, we're stuck where we are, with no house, no car. The song Castaways, which aired 16 years ago, gains a new form of appreciation trending on TikTok. It even reached number one on the Spotify Global Viral 50 chart. Reporter Maria Jimena Aragon speaks with the man behind the soundtrack to our childhoods. For Doug Wieselman, music has always been a part of his life. From jazz to theater, the New York musician and composer has done it all. 
but you may know him best from his work on the Nickelodeon show, The Backyardigans. Writing over 80 songs over the course of four seasons, Wieselman and I sat down to talk about his experience on the show, its newfound appreciation on social media, and how his collaborator and friend Evan Lurie offered an opportunity he couldn't refuse. Evan I met in the Lounge Lizards, as I mentioned, and uh, he had already been doing some children's TV stuff. He did this thing called Oswald the Octopus, or maybe it was just called Oswald, but I played on some of those sessions and he i think he responded to the way i was able to understand what he was doing so when he was offered backyardigans he knew it was going to be a lot of work so he asked me to help out and that's what it, that's we just started just start happening his the woman who uh was the creator is is an old friend of evans janice burgess and she's an amazing woman her whole premise was just hire the best people you can and let them do what they do, you know. The animated show about five colorful animals with big imaginations captured the hearts of preschoolers back in 2004. Fast forward to today and those same kids are remixing and taking over social media with the bossa nova sound of Castaways. Castaways, we are castaways. Ahoy there, ahoy, we are castaways. We're stuck where we are, with no house, no car. On May 13th, the song debuted at number one on the U.S. Spotify Viral 50 chart, all thanks to TikTok. So the song itself has over 23,000 videos with the song in the background. It's on TikTok, and it aired in 2005. What does that mean, 23,000 videos? There's 23,000 videos with the song. I will show you. We were out at sea. On a sailing ship, the rain began to rain. <laughs> I was gonna ask you, what were your thoughts? It's been like 16 years, and there's yeah. so many videos with your with your music. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's about time. No, <laughs> no, um, I have no idea. I mean, I just did it. I we all. Basically, I wrote things that I liked, you know, I was not trying to, it was funny because we would, we'd get really, we got really into the production of these songs. I mean, we'd get into, we'd spend time mixing and like, we'd like nitpick and it, there'd be times we'd be really getting into it and Evan would go, you know, our audience is three years old, <laughs> you know, and it was like, but we had fun, you know. We had a lot of fun doing it. So maybe that comes out. There's a sense of joy to the doing of it. Why do you think this song is the one that's on the viral hits right now? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I mean, I studied per Brazilian percussion. Like I studied samba when I first came to New York. I used to go to this, uh, this basement samba class. We'd like play samba for, for three hours and you know, it's like a trance. But anyway, so I was familiar with the music and uh, why it's catching on now, I have no idea. But Bossa Nova, is, it's fun, sunny music. It's like, I think it's maybe because we've been going through so much, through, through so much darkness and the kind of maybe the light's starting to shine now. It's maybe there's an appeal to it. It's very, it's soothing, it's nice, it's uh, fun, and it's groovy. <laughs> Yeah. Do you I mean, play? Do you play the songs every once in a while? Like you just. Yeah, like I something goes comes in my head, like or Evan will get something in his head, or I'll get something in my head, and we'll send each other like, you know, wow, wasn't that something? Or wow, what were we thinking? You know, like. <laughs> Castaways isn't the only Backyard Again song trending. Into the Thick of It and Secret Agent are also getting their time in the spotlight. Well, I think that was, I think the idea also was to expose kids to real music, like to real, to things that they might not be exposed to. Like, 
you know, we did a lot of obscure stuff like, you know, Beguine music from Martinique and like uh, a Rossini overtures, you know, it was like, it was all sort of our jug band. We just, you know, it was like, maybe these kids didn't know this stuff if they're just listening to pop music or whatever they're fed. And it was like a way of exposing them to something that without hitting them over the head, just like, we just tried to make it as real as we, and fun as we could. Who is your favorite backyard again? Oh, my favorite? Mm -hmm. Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't really, I don't have a favorite. Can I say that? <laughs> I mean, I like them all. I think the unique one was the most open. So I think that I probably liked her most maybe because of her openness. The soundtrack of our childhood memories shapes us in unexpected ways. And whether it's the nostalgia or the creativity of people online, the Backyardigans have shown us the power of music, uniting us during these difficult times. That's like the great thing about getting older. You know, I grew up with like the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. And I, I listened to those records and I like sometimes I'll hear something I've never heard before back from from like over 50 years ago. And it's like, wow. Now that that's great that the kids are maybe discovering, you know, some other things about these because we put a lot of work into these songs, you know. But I'll, I'll leave you with this. Sammy Davis Jr. says, you know, it's a gas when the kids dig it. <laughs> For WNUR News, I'm Maria Jimena Aragon. Earlier this month, WNUR News reported on the cicadas and their upcoming hot girl summer. But we wanted to take a step back. We wanted to come in for a closer look, give them an origin story to see how the hot girl became and how the hot girl will become. Here's Allison Rock with more. Move over, hot girls and white boys, because it's cicada summer. Though annual cicadas make regular appearances, it's a special year for the perennial cicadas. They emerge in either 13 or 17 year increments, and the summer of 2021 means debut time for brood 10 of the 17 year cicadas, one of 15 broods of perennial cicadas. They began emerging earlier this month, and more are on their way. While there won't be many in the Chicago area, students who live across the upper Midwest and Northeast will see plenty of cicada action this summer. Freshman Lia Neela Condon told me about the cicadas in her hometown. So I'm from Baltimore, um, so we get cicadas every 17 years. So obviously last time cicadas were around, I was really young and I don't remember it at all. I've never seen one, um, but I tend to hear them. Freshman Kate Austin, who's from Illinois, also had some choice words. They kind of look like... I've like categorized them as kind of like zombie bugs. They're like in the ground and then like at some designated time they like come out of the ground. I'm from Austin, Texas, and so I've never gotten to experience the ear-shattering joys of trillions of cicadas emerging into my hometown. So I spoke to Maureen Turcatel, collections manager of insects at Chicago's Field Museum, to learn a little more. Turns out there's a lot unknown about why cicadas operate the way they do. So we, we don't really know why they, they spend that much time underground. It might have to do with the climate, but I, I'm not sure. I could, I could be wrong on that. But they might be able to know the different seasons because they are, they are not... A lot of people think that they are dormant or um, we don't say hibernating. We say, for insects, we say diapausing, but cicadas don't diapause. The time that they spend underground, they're nymphs. And they, are they attach themselves to the roots of trees and they feed. They spend all these years feeding and... Probably they, they notice some different uh, nutritional content on the sap. So, so they can tell when a year has passed, but we don't really know how they count 17 or 13 years. Turcatel said that cicadas have already been popping up in the D.C. area and around northern Virginia and Maryland the past few weeks. And they've started to sing. I've seen some people posting like uh, videos and, and measuring the decibels. It's going, it's going up to, I don't know, 72, 73 decibels. So it's really loud. Like, it's, it's impossible not to notice them.
According to Pulsar Instruments, this is around the same noise level as a toilet flushing or a vacuum cleaner. That sound clip was from Neela Condon's mom in Baltimore. The static you hear is all cicadas. Weirdly enough, I kind of like the sound of cicadas. I've kind of like associated it with home and like nature and it's like a comfort to me, I guess. But the noise isn't all Brood 10 has in store. Outlets like the New York Post and CNN have been reporting on the so-called, quote, sex-crazed zombie cicadas, end quote, set to make their debut alongside the rest of Brood 10 this summer. The effects are caused by a fungus, Massospora cicadina, that eats away at their bodies. I asked her Cattell to tell me a little more, and her cat was being a little chatty. There's a byproduct, a uh, chemical byproduct of the fungus, fungi, similar to psilocybin, so that's why people are saying that it's this uh, psychedelic uh, chemical, and it just makes them really frenetic and trying to mate at all costs. But it's weird because they, their abdomen is all taken by, by the, the fungus. Basically, their butt fall off, their genitals are gone, and it's just like this, it, it kind of looks like, you know, those uh, rubber tips on, on pencils? It kind of looks like that. So that's a mass of fungus. And, but they're trying to mate. They're trying to find another, uh, you know, cicada and trying to mate. And what they're not really mating because their genitalia is gone, basically. But they are spreading the, the fungus. The genitalist cicadas spread the fungus through air spores that fall as they beat their wings, leading the New York Post to deem them, quote, flying salt shakers of death, end quote. But don't worry, the fungus and cicadas in general aren't harmful to humans. In fact, for some, the trillions of cicadas hitting the town this summer means it's snack time. CBS News discussed how around the world, insects are regularly eaten seasonally. You know, it's, it's easy to, to source. They, they are environmentally friendly. It, they're packed with proteins. I've eaten crickets and mealworms, and, and they're good. And I'll try cicadas. If they're fully cooked, it should be fine. I remember, like, last time when there's a big swarm, there's, like, cicada pizza. I had, like, this babysitter, or, like, this summer nanny. I remember her showing me. She's like, they have cicada pizza. And I was like, that's so gross. Um, and this time I saw, like, on the news, they had, like, cicada tacos somewhere. So maybe try a cicada if you find yourself in prime territory this summer. Anyway you slice it, though, it seems the cicadas are ready to join the vaxxed and waxed for summer 2021. As Twitter user Adam Harris said, quote, Cicada Brood is here, Benefer is back, all we need is an Usher song of the summer, and I'm ready for you, 2004, end quote. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rauch. This year tested a lot of our limits, but being in a pandemic makes us take a step back and reevaluate what matters to us most. For our final roundtable, reporter Sarah Cadora sits down with NU students to learn about what they found to be the most important this year. Hi, my name is Iray. I am currently a second year in the School of Calm. My name is Camille and I am a junior in Medill. My name is Joe. I am a sophomore in Weinberg. I am currently a poli-sci and an econ double major, but after this midterm that I just took today, I'm thinking about becoming an econ minor. Um, I'm Colin. I'm a first year in Weinberg studying math. So welcome and thank you so, so much for being here on short notice, all of you. Our idea for this roundtable is that it takes more of a serious introspective look at the last year, the things that were important to us this year. So you're right, you still feel up for it. What do you want to talk about? Yeah, I don't know. I guess one of the most important things for me this year was relationships and understanding like how dynamics of relationships can shift and also like accepting that and then understanding how to prioritize certain relationships over others. Yeah, I'm back. I feel like with me throughout this past year, like my entire self has just completely changed. Um, like my sense of style has completely changed and I'm so much more confident with like how I appear and present myself um, and like I changed my hair. like. I was just given so much time to like self-reflect and like adapt and, um, you know, going into adulthood with like that ability to just like sit there for like days on end with no responsibilities and just be able to like develop that like has meant so much. And so I don't know, I'm just so excited to like um, see that. Wait, first of all, I want to say yes on you just 
finding yourself, putting time yourself, and being totally okay with living your life. Yes, Colin. And then I definitely learned how to be content and accept my situations and then learn about my own routines. I definitely spent the every most days of the summer staying indoors in my bed, working from 10 to 6 for my internship, and then watching the Netflix until 2 a.m. And I thought, you know, I got through a lot of material. But then in the same way, I was tuning out a lot of political nonsense that was that would bring me to like visceral irritation and anger and annoyance that was deep. And I'm like, that's just not how things are supposed to be. I gotta keep contextualizing, getting back to, you know, what are my values? What's my spirituality? No, things like that. So in a way, I did learn to just kind of have faith, I guess. And even if things are always positive, because I'll say that, do I think things are fine? No, I still think that, that everything politically and socially is kind of trash, but is it gonna get better soon? Like, nah, but at the same time, I'm going to just keep knowing who I am, my political voices, what my values are, what my long-term goals are, the things that make me happy, how to accept all my situations and as they come and find faith, nevertheless. Snaps to that. I'm just thinking about, like, thinking about what my, um, my therapist said to me, like, this last week. Like, there's a lot of unknown in the world, and being comfortable not necessarily being comfortable, being content with sitting in that discomfort of like not knowing what's coming next um, is like super healthy. This is like turning into like lessons we learned from COVID, which like feel free to like run with that or don't. What, what was it supposed to be? <laughs> Things that were important to us, which is like, this, oh, this, this what is was like, important to me? I did completely join a cult last year that is on campus, but that is all what's it called? I'll get very brief into it because this is a topic of another round table. This, the church is called Meta, but it's really called the International Church of Christ. And I was like spending like five to ten hours, like we doing their cult things, which were really just normal Christian things, but like mandatory and really kind of intense. <laughs> Okay, I'm just, okay, wait, okay, okay, sorry. Just for, like, a timeline. You're no longer part of this church. Yeah, I met them January. No, I can't give dates because they'll follow me and contact trace me, like, coronavirus style. I've been, like, completely disengaged since, like, August. Um, I just ghosted. I said, I said, like, this is why you're a cult and why God is not with this. <laughs> Did you have something to say, Michelle? I was going to say there's a cult right by my house. It's called the Institute of Basic Life Principles. And they just filmed a documentary about them. If you guys have ever heard about them, it's right by my house. If you drive past their building at nighttime, you will be followed. And I have been followed. So that's all I have to say. We went from lessons from COVID to lessons from cults, like, so fast, like, so fast. Oh, I'm sorry. Fun fact, Joe, in the beginning, I need to tell you this. In the beginning of, like, spring, mid-spring quarter, when I was like, we should do a Bible study. That was under cult influence, but... Yeah, me and Camille are in the same Christian group on campus that's next to Allison called University Christian Ministry, but I promise you we are not a cult. But no, I was doing it because I was just like, I got a disciple. Joe, I gotta hit my disciples for the year. <sighs> I don't remember you asked me to do a Bible study. I'm so confused. Oh no. Dang it, I didn't make my impact. No, we did two Bibles. We did the book, we did first John. We did one John chapter one. What? And two. Oh, yeah. last year. I thought you meant this year. No, last year, honey boo boo. But just a fun fact. Back to COVID lessons or COVID. What, wait, what was important? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just, what I absolutely love is how Camille just like dropped that in. And then like after like 10 minutes was like, okay, so that's what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> You, you hit a niche for me. I've had like 
hours of conversations about this with people over the past year. So it's been like a topic. It's something that's been important to you. So what did you learn this year, Maria? Cults, am I right? And that's all for this WNUR news special broadcast on This Year in Review. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News, Instagram, and best of all, Spotify. On behalf of our producer and reporter Sarah Cadora and reporters Angelina Campanile, Helen Bradshaw, Nick Song, Alex Harrison, Thomas Goodwin, Margo Milanowski, and Allison Rauch, I'm Maria Jimena Aragon. And I'm Maria Camaño. You've been listening to WNUR News on 89.3 FM HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.